Podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, hey, hail to the champions, a review of the championship four in the Cup Series and how all of them can improve on a great year next year in 2020, what the titles of Tyler Reddick and Matt Crafton really mean, and a look back at our preseason predictions. Yikes. But first, as always, this is episode 44 of Positive Regression. This is the Terry Labonte edition. Texas Terry Labonte, David. He was a two-time champion. Super interesting career. One of those championships came in a beautiful number 44 Piedmont Airlines car, which means a lot to people around Charlotte, especially if you grew up in North Carolina or the South. Uh, that, that, That old Piedmont Airlines means a lot to people. The only way that could have been uh, more of a North Carolina car is if Krispy Kreme had been on the, <laughs> on the car somehow. Um, but you're right. That was his first of two. That came in 1984 at the age of 27. Terry scored a 3.783 peer that season driving for car owner Billy Hagen. Actually, he would actually circle back uh, later in his career and drive for Hagen again. That number 94 Sunoco car and the number 14 Kellogg's car, was before he joined Hendrick, uh, were both with owner Billy Hagen. And the crew chief on that car was Dale Enman. And that meant that Dale Enman became the first and still to this point only crew chief to win NASCAR Cup Series championships with multiple owners. Cole Pern was very close <laughs> this past weekend. He could have been the second, but Dale Inman is still the last guy standing. But Alan, this is positive regression, and this is a good way to kind of end the year here. But his 1996 championship, Terry Labonte, how old do you think he was? Well, I can do quick math and um, add 12 to 27. And what do we get, David? 39 years old? He was 39. So that was a 3.968 peer. That was an incredible season, that 96 season, because his primary competition was his stable mate at Hendrick. Jeff Gordon won 10 races and scored a 5.339 peer. I don't know if this was a hole in the Bob Latford uh, point standing system, but... Terry Labonte had less bad finishes or his bad finishes weren't as bad as Jeff Gordon's and he ended up beating him by 37 points. Not that I would ever, ever commiserate with a Jeff Gordon fan, but I understand <laughs> that pain. Let me tell you, after Rusty, what happened in 93, uh, you know, some, I know there are Jeff Gordon fans still mad at that. You know, 10 wins for Gordon, you know, the trajectory that he was on, the history that was being made by Jeff Gordon and ter- old man Terry Labonte steals his teammates stole the championship from him. That's how some people look at it. Yeah, I I, I agree. I mean, not to take anything uh, away from Labonte, but that is a legitimate gripe, <laughs> I think. But um, but either way, I mean, Labonte's career was remarkable. I know that when we do these opening segments, we've talked about a lot of different drivers who didn't get their starts until late. Well, Terry Labonte was full-time at age 22. He started as a pup. And he retired from full-time racing at age 47. He was briefly the Ironman of NASCAR. He made 655 consecutive starts, which at that point was the all-time record. And the reason it ended was a crash at Daytona that kind of rocked him. It was thought... It was thought originally to be a concussion. He was experiencing 
dizziness and he saw uh, a doctor. They ran tests. There were no signs of a head injury, but he missed two races and that was the end of the streak. He went on to compete in 157 more races. And if we tacked that number onto his 655, it would be 812 consecutive starts. And he would still be NASCAR's Ironman. How about that? Yeah. Uh, wouldn't be, uh, eventually, he was surpassed by Ricky Rudd and then surpassed by Jeff Gordon. But he'd still be the uh, the guy. Yeah, great, interesting career. That long gap between the uh, championships, I believe, is a record and just a testament to his talent, which is really neat. Uh, I just you know, remember the Earnhardt incidents, you know, getting roughed up and rattled. Uh, he was on the other end of getting his cage rattled. So, um, and his last win, remember where it came from? The Southern 500 at Darlington. That just felt so, so appropriate. And uh, so a good Hall of Fame worthy and obviously Hall of Fame um, career for Terry Labonte. And you still see him from time to time, which is always a cool thing. Episode 44, the Terry Labonte edition. All right, David, I can't believe it. The season is over. We have our respective champions in the series, including let's start with the Cup Series. Kyle Busch is the champ after Homestead. And just like we've done with every other round, we're going to do our requiem for what went right and maybe what went wrong for some of these drivers. So we'll get to Kyle Busch in a second. But uh, let's start with Denny Hamlin because Denny Hamlin had, uh, you know, he had the storyline, if you will. Is that is that fair to say, David? He had the, the good year going and kind of the sentimental favorite in terms of, you know, this was supposed to be his year. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it was, well, I mean, he's the only one of the four that hadn't won a championship. Uh, so there, there was intrigue in that regard. And I mean, just the, the win at Phoenix. So he came in just with a, a head of steam and, and had the storylines going into Homestead. But, uh, I tell you what, I mean, even, even in practice, he was, he was fast and it felt as if this was going to be a pretty, a pretty good Denny Hamlin race. Oh yeah. I mean, that, that win in Phoenix gave him six on the year, 24 top tens, but David, you know, we're going to look back at Homestead on his shot to win the championship. Uh, let, let's first talk about the tape issue or was that the only issue? Where do you, how do you want to look at it? When we look at what went wrong in Homestead, certainly was the tape, certainly was the overheating, but was that the only issue we should be paying attention to? I would say Kyle Bush's restart and subsequent burst, uh, after, after stage two was interesting. I mean, he, he, he had the best speed in the third quarter of the race and it was the fastest quarter of any car in the race. And I think that may have forced Chris Gabehart's hand. Uh, after the fact, Gabehart admitted that he probably shouldn't have gotten greedy. He used the word greedy. He, he felt that the car was good enough. It, it might have contended, uh, without the tape. Maybe that's true, but, but Kyle Busch put a hurting on him. And ultimately, I, I, I don't know because there was a, a point of diminishing returns for the freshness of tires. I'm not so sure. I think it was Bush's night. Had Hamlin not had the overheating issue, it would have been closer. I, but I mean, that is just, it's so difficult to say. Now I, I, I will say this, Alan. We talked when we did the requiems for Brad Keselowski and Joey Logano, and they were eliminated in races where they tried an adjustment and it just backfired. It just did not work. And those were, uh, two drivers whose teams did that well over the course of the year. They got faster as races progressed. Um, the 11 team with Denny Hamlin, their whole season has been defined by aggressive pit maneuvering, not just 
uh, two weeks ago at Phoenix, but the, the race earlier this year that they won at Texas, uh, after two early race penalties, it was Chris Gabehart who was jumping Hamlin up the running order. And I believe the last green flag stop was a, it wasn't, it wasn't even for tires. It was a splash and go. Um, that's an aggressive maneuver and it got Hamlin the win. So look, if you're going to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword at times. And uh, that's what happened here. I don't know that they can, that they need to second guess it. I'm sure there are regrets, but I think it's just a matter of what they did well didn't work this time. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the race fan side of me, if you will, like, like Denny said after the race, uh, you, you just would have wanted to see him have the shot, right? To see, we would have loved to see that opportunity play out on the track rather than in the pits, you know, blowing water, uh, blowing steam out there. Uh, it would, it would have been cool, you know, right? It would have been cool to see the competitor come through and see if you could catch Kyle Busch. Yeah, certainly taking no credit away from the 18 team. Uh, every time we've done one of these, David, we, we've, we select a fix for 2020, how to make it better. Uh, these get harder and harder as we get, you know, as we talk about the better drivers toward the end of the year. I mean, it's kind of hard to nitpick some of these guys, but just looking at, uh, some of the charts and some of the, the stats, you know, he had the fourth fastest overall car. That speed, that ranking dropped down to seventh on the mile and a half. So if you look at just the mile and a half tracks, so maybe, you know, give some more speed there and it can ultimately make you, uh, one of the more elite teams, even though they were already an elite team, but given the, the, the prevalence, is that, is that right word? Pre- the prevalence <laughs> of, um, of the mile and a half tracks, uh, you know, there was some room for improvement there. And then just looking at some of his, uh, restart stats, his non-preferred groove restarts, retaining his position from the non-preferred groove, it was 43%. And, and when you look if relatively, that's mid-pack. So, if you want to be up in that elite discussion, especially on non-preferred groove restarts with with restarts being so important as they are, I think that would be a big fix for Denny Hamlin. You know, again, we're nitpicking here, but that's one place that lacked a little bit. No, I agree. I mean, if you have the the chance to shore up your weaknesses, you do it. And next year will be Hamlin's age 39 season. Not that that's always a magical elixir, but we are at the point in an average driver's career for Hamlin, he's just now entered his peak years. And this was the best that we've ever seen him, not just from a production standpoint, but from a peripheral stat standpoint. He's never been an above par passer ever in his career. Mm -hmm. And he was this year. And he looked phenomenal. I mean, this, this team, we said very early in the season that we thought Chris Gabehart might be inheriting a better, more complete team than Cole Pern was at Joe Gibbs Racing. I think that is true. Cole Pern still had success because he's Cole Pern, but this team was good. Gabehart made some changes. It was winless last year, and they won six times and made it to the championship four. That's a pretty hefty transformation in one offseason. So, I'm anxious for year two. It should be exciting. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, our next driver, or at least his crew chief from Cole Pern. So uh, Martin Truex Jr., David, uh, assess his year, his homestead, and what uh, he can do to improve. It's crazy to even say something like that after seven wins. Uh, it is. It, it, was a, it was a series high, seven victories. The 19 car climbed all the way to third in central speed. It was the fastest car in six of the eight non-drafting ovals in the playoffs. That includes Homestead. 
Um, he ranked third in pier, Martin Truex. He ranked second in surplus passing value. He was the best preferred groove restarter and the best restarter when restarting from the lead position. So, hmm. hey, not bad. Pretty good. Martin Truex, good driver. He is also uh, 39 this year, I should note. But uh, Olmstead, what went wrong? Um, how can I list the ways? Uh <laughs> Again, uh, we're, we're all going to point to the tire thing, yeah. and, and and is that the only issue? Should we be looking beyond that? Because he was really damn fast early. I was texting you. I was like, I was so glad I picked Martin Truex Jr. I'm glad I listened to you on, on race day and made a good pick, and, and then the, the tire debacle, but I don't know if that was the only issue. That pit stop affected them, certainly. I believe it was indirectly to the result, not directly. Um, it was the tipping point for certain, but the, the restart at the start of the final stage with Kevin Harvick in front of him, Truex was lined up behind and we saw on the replay, NBC showed it, Harvick's eyes were totally on his rear view mirror. And I don't know if this is how he always restarts, but he was on the front row and he was already playing defense, which was odd. And I'm going to guess Truex thought he probably would play offense and ran into the back of him. And it got to a point where the 19 car was all but stopped on the first lap following a restart. And uh, that killed the ensuing run. And he he never recovered. The The stop that they made under green was maybe a lap after... Denny Hamlin, if I'm not mistaken, but the, the, he, he was already playing defense for positioning, but also trying to get back within sniffing distance of Kyle Busch. And I know as the laps counted down, he cut into that Delta, um, but I believe Kyle Busch was saving fuel at the end of that run. And, uh, and that was it. I don't know that it was one mistake that, that pit stop was a big mistake and that is going to linger for that team, that pit crew and, uh, that, uh, that tire guy. But, um, it wasn't the only mistake that they made. And ultimately the, the final runs of the race, again, that third quarter that Kyle Bush had, he put on an insurmountable lead. It turns out and Truex didn't have that. It was the fastest car on the day. But in the moment where he needed to be fast or he needed clean air, he didn't have either. And that was, that was all she wrote. Interesting. That's a, actually a really good way to, to look at it and put, uh, again, with seven wins and uh, a really breakout year, you know, in terms of being your first for JGR, how does the 19 team improve? What's the fix, if anything? What's the improvement for 2020? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, admittedly, there's not a lot to fix. This was, just a fantastic team. I mean, really, they were, they were so enjoyable to watch this year and during this playoffs. They they probably made the playoffs uh, for me. But my fix, uh, Alan, is become good at ISM Raceway, the <laughs> yeah, site <right>? of, <laughs> of next year's championship race. I, I'm half serious about it. In 28 career starts, Martin Truex has never won in Phoenix. He's led 11 laps there across the last eight years, which is a span of 16 races. I don't think it'll take much uh, for them to master this track. They seem to do that when they, they want to focus. Um, but they did rank second in central speed there in the spring. They ranked fourth 
in the fall. And uh, this this past weekend, Cole Pern admitted that uh, he phoned in Texas <laughs> and Phoenix. So we didn't even see their uh, their full attempt at that. They'll need to find that extra oomph to put them over the top because for Kevin Harvick and Kyle Busch, their reputations at Phoenix precede them. Denny Hamlin is now the most recent winner. Uh, this might fall on the driver. It might not, but that's the tweak, a small one that could mean absolutely everything. Interesting. And you mentioned Kevin Harvick. That's our next driver lining up on our Requiem for uh, 2019. Coming up just short in Homestead. Uh, four wins, though, this season in 2019. 26 top 10s. And as David uh, will tell you every week, and you know if you listen to this podcast, the fastest car in the series, pound for pound, over the year, once again, goes to Rodney Childers and the four car. Uh, he certainly had his moments in Homestead. He led three different times for 40 laps. Now, the last time he led was because of a, uh, a kind of a Hail Mary pit call, right? The way Rodney Childers described it in terms of they were the fourth out of four cars. You know, they were the fourth best out of the four. And at that point, you're going to have to do something different. So they went as long as possible on the set of tires, long pitting as long as possible, which ultimately gave him the lead for that last time. But uh, it just didn't work out. The caution never came out, which uh, is what you needed if that strategy was going to be effective. Uh, but that that I think that ultimately tells us they just didn't have the speed at the end, David. What was your view on what went wrong at Homestead? Well, I mean, as for the pit call, I questioned that too. And I ultimately view that as Rodney Childers waved a white flag of surrender before the pit cycle even started because that was so unlike Rodney Childers. Rodney Childers hmm. might be the most conservative pitter. And if you think about it, if he loses spots, what does he care? He has a fast car and he has Kevin Harvick. But here, I think that he quickly assessed the situation. Harvick was also affected by that bad restart but Childers assessed the situation, realized that I don't have a winning race car. So the best shot I have is to pit way long, which is crazy on a track where tires wear uh, so violently. But th there was a method to that madness because he, he was betting on a caution that would come either before the stop or after. And either way, they would have fresher tires. And this was a hedge to end all hedges. You're right. It, the, the caution never came. Um, he eventually had to pit. And at that time, uh, Kyle Bush was too far gone to, to do anything. So I, I think that they knew they didn't have the proper speed. And I found Harvick's post-race comments fascinating. I mean, I don't know that he was, you know, disappointed hanging his head by any means. I think he knew what they were trying to do and they guessed incorrect. Um, he said that they needed a caution and that he had a short run car. And we've talked about on this podcast, what this rules package in the NASCAR cup series meant for Homestead. You're probably going to have to bring either a short run car or a long run car. And the limitations of the package uh, mean that you won't be able to do both very well. Well, Harvick really liked his short run ability. 
Uh, they didn't care too much of their long run ability. And this was the team that was impacted. We thought that there would be a team that would just miss the setup completely. And it might have been the four team. Uh, I mean, g- granted, it, it didn't look as bad. They didn't miss it that much. It was still a fast car. But where they had the choice to optimize their car, uh, they they didn't bet on the long run. And uh, they ended up losing. Yep, a good year nonetheless, though, obviously making it to Homestead, being one of those championship four. Uh, but looking at a fix for 2020, David, I have two things that immediately stuck out to me when digging into the numbers. The first one I want your perspective on. He led the series in peer in production in 2018 with 4.8. That dropped to 3.2 this year in 2019. Give us some perspective as to what that means and what what, what lowers appear like that because that's a significant drop. Well, parity for one, um, bad peripheral statistics for two. Uh, this was his first year since I started counting surplus passing value in 2014 that Kevin Harvick was a below par passer. Um, and I don't know whether to attribute that to the rules package or old age. And I would say for 2020, the difference is negligible because he's not going to get any younger and the rule package remains intact, right? Um, the restarting, he was a top three guy mm-hmm. just a few years ago. Um, this year, he's a top 10 guy. He was still feisty on restarts, but that's not the same. So when you when you lose a little speed on your fastball, so to speak, the the ERA isn't going to be the same, you know, right? The the, the peer is going to take a, a pretty big hit. Now he's still plenty good enough. I, when when I say that he's in decline, that doesn't mean stick a fork in him, he's done. That means is we're not seeing Harvick at his full capabilities that we knew of him at his height. He's not at his height. He's he's just past that. He's still going to be good and certainly better than the average driver because Kevin Harvick's a Hall of Famer. But because of this, his team is going to have to build around the guy Harvick is now, not the guy he was three years ago, because that guy's not walking through the door. Yeah, I mentioned the peer, and you mentioned uh, what I was going to bring up about the passing. Uh, This year, a middle-of-the-road passer. When I looked up his 2018 passing numbers, what he's been able to uh, get, you know, with himself, uh, you know, produce on the racetrack in, in, in passing numbers, in passing other cars, uh, the 2018 numbers, you know, he was one of those top guys and that all of those stats and every single um, kind of t- track type that you look at and measure, he went to middle of the road. You know what I mean? So there was a drop there. And when you have the fastest car, that's sort of an issue, right? I mean, when you have the fastest car, you want to be able to maximize your potential with it. And seeing that drop in passing production, that was significant. It looked to me, at least on paper in 2019. They can't, uh, they can't rely on the status quo. Going forward, they're going to have to figure out what their program looks like for the next two years. I believe Harvick assigned at Stuart Haas through 2021. And look, no, he's going to be 44 next year, 45 the year after. And it's not going to be the same. He's not going to be the same guy he was when he was 38 or 39. And whether they make those adjustments, whether they respect the fact that this is an older Harvick, still good, still wise, just you know, not a, uh, not as potent of an attacker. They come to that realization they can still be a viable threat for the championship. It's just going to look different. All right, next up, finally, our champion, Kyle Busch. 
and I'll, I'll let you take this one, David, because he had a hell of a season. Maybe a surprise, you know, a surprising uh, winless streak by his standards, certainly. But at the end of the year, he's the one holding the big ass trophy. And uh, and and with the victory, he leapfrogged Denny Hamlin. He's going to end the year ranked first in Pierre. Um, he has the second fastest car this year. We've discussed the troubles during the playoffs, which I believe to be real. The Homestead win doesn't just wipe all that away. The poor closing speed is a thing that will have to be addressed. There was plenty of good during the season, though. Previously, Kyle Busch had weaknesses. Uh, his biggest weakness was long run passing. That is no more. For as much as he hated this rules package, and we know that because he mentioned it every weekend. He told us. (laughs) He was the second most efficient passer among those in the top half of the field. He was good on long runs. He was good on short runs. He was the, uh, he has the second best position retention rate when restarting from the lead. He's got it all. I mean, he, he is a very, very difficult driver to beat. And at some point during their, what was it, 21 race win drought, it went from a driver who was with a team and they were uh, just not getting wins to a team that was just in a full-throated manner underperforming, right? They had the 10th fastest fourth quarter speed in the playoffs. And I'm sorry, but that's not good. That's nearly a third of the year and contains the races that we deem to be the most important. That's going to have to be corrected. But it all went right at Homestead, didn't it? Didn't it? I I was going to say, I mean, for a team that was lacking in late race speed, uh, as you brought up already, but as we saw on the track just with our own eyes, they came on in the second half of that race uh, when it counted the most. Crazy. Yeah, and look, I think we can find mistakes by the other three drivers in the championship four. Don't know we can find any with the 18 team. Uh, and Adam Stevens, we talked about in the preview for Homestead how in the 2018 race, he was the one long pitting, and it was a caution that sort of re-racked the field and blew apart his strategy. Well, did you did you catch how he pitted this time around? It wasn't uh, it wasn't necessarily a short pit, but he pitted before the other teams in the championship. For uh, I think it was actually Ryan Blaney that opened uh, opened the pit window, but he he pitted early compared to his competition. He was on fresh tires faster, and that was it. They put a hurting on him. So uh, you saw a crew chief correct a mistake. From a year ago, you saw Kyle Busch kind of put everything that he did well this season, especially in the first half of the season, together for one race. And it goes to show that Kyle Busch and Adam Stevens are a formidable duo. And even when shit hits the fan, if they can just get their ducks in a row, they're unbeatable. And my fix for 2020 is to improve the communication between the both of them, whatever that chasm was. Uh, there, there was something happening. You don't just go from having the fastest car, period, during the regular season to having the 10th fastest car in the fourth quarter of playoff races without something occurring. And their car was much faster at the beginning of the race, so I don't know if 
was Kyle Busch relaying bad information? Was Adam Stevens not interpreting this information well? I don't know. And if that is a sign of a bigger problem, that's going to have to be something that is considered after all the, the partying and celebrating and their trip to Nashville and wherever else they're going on this world tour because they won a championship. They're going to have to sit down and figure out some things because if this is real, then it's just going to persist going into 2020. And then we're going to be having the same conversation about Kyle. And it, I just, I'm thinking back to one of the articles you wrote about, uh, you know, Adam Stevens gave you the quote about, you know, it's not like we planned to peak at one time or the other. You know what I mean? I think it, it was something to that effect. And, uh, lo and behold, he peaked right at the right time, didn't he? <laughs> I just think that's yeah, funny. Yeah. And now that's, that's, that's Jordan Bianchi's article. Oh, okay. And, yeah, yeah. and, and Stevens, yeah. I mean, Stevens was sort of, even before the playoffs started, it was like, well, I mean, what, what do you want? And it was that they had gone winless through the summer stretch, but even then their numbers were still good. Their, their underlying performance was good. And then once the playoffs started, their win drought took on a different context because those underlying numbers were no longer good. The only thing that, that was a constant was Kyle Bush's ability to pass. And he sort of fought on his own to get cars up the running order. There were some mistakes that he made. Those were certainly his fault, but he was still able to get by guys. Um, that didn't change. So I, I don't know what the disconnect was. Um, there's a mystery mechanically uh, through those first nine races of the playoffs I think they need to get to the bottom of it. Well, four worthy drivers, only one champion, all have fixes that they can be made and possibly even get better for 2020. But I think that was overall a damn good assessment. And congratulations to Kyle Busch and Adam Stevens on being the 2019 Cup champions. Now that the season's over, we are going to throw it back a little bit to our preseason episodes of (laughs) Positive Regression because we do what everybody else generally does and tries to make preseason predictions. Now I will give us credit, David. We go a little more in depth than just picking playoff drivers and winners and all that stuff, uh, which means we can either be uh, fiercely accurate or way, way off in our predictions. So we're going to go back and look and see how we did. So we made a bunch of predictions. You know, it's when we did them for, we, we kind of went through each team for a team preview and made a prediction. So let, let's start it off with what we got right, David. Uh, you've got the list. We, we're both looking at it right now. We went back and listened. What did we get right when we were predicting 2019? I, I will, I will give some credit to you first. You said that Denny Hamlin would win two races, at least two races. <laughs> yes. So you got, you got that Go one me. right. And you predict, you made this, this was an interesting prediction in hindsight. You said Kevin Harvick would not surpass 1400 laps led. And I think that was like 500 and change lower than it was, uh, than what it was in 2018. He had the fastest car this year and only led 953 laps. I thought that one was easy. I, I mean, that. making that prediction way back when, just given the new package and everything, and uh, not positive regression, just regression, regression. You know, it's hard to lead two thousand laps again. Uh, but I, but he I had the fastest car. True, I know, and I just didn't. I, I, for some reason, I was super. Co- that was my one of my most confident picks. Was th- not thinking 
not believing he would leave 1,400 more laps, and uh, I'll pat myself on the back for that one. Believe me, I got plenty of them wrong, but that one I will pat myself on the back for. <laughs> we'll, we'll go into some of the ones that you got wrong here in a minute, but uh, I, I will I will pat, pat myself on the back now. For the ones that I got right, I said Matt Tift would have the second best average finish among front row motorsports drivers. And Allen, he averaged a finish of 26.0. That was only a hair better than David Reagan's 26.3. So, ding, ding. hey, I got that one right. Um, Hendrick Motorsports, I predicted that William Byron would win his first Cup Series poll. And you got it right away. I was I was secretly mad. I was like, damn, David is so damn good at this. Because you predicted that, and then he went out and got the Daytona 500 poll. I was like, wow! <laughs> he, Day, Daytona, Darlington, Indianapolis. He won five polls in total. Uh, what a year. I said we'd see the speed before we'd see the wins. You were incredulous. You said, that's, that's it? Just a poll? And I said, yeah, just a poll. No wins. Uh, and it turns out that was, uh, it, it was right to just, you know, pump, pump the brakes a little bit. He's, he's going to be a good one. Uh, Joe Gibbs Racing, for me, we both made a Denny Hamlin prediction. I said that he would win at least two races, make the final eight, and would be a close contender for the championship for he obviously exceeded, uh, that. And, uh, and that was, uh, oh no, I did have one more. JTG Doherty Racing. I said that Chris Busher would have a breakout season mm-hmm. and become a top 20 producer, and he ranked 19th. Good job here. Good job on yeah. that one. Yeah, so we got that. I mean, there, there were some good ones, and if you go back, it was episodes two and three. If you listen to those, first of all, it seems like a million years ago, <laughs> and I was, I was talking into a tin can. So we have, we have really worked hard to improve, uh, the quality of these episodes, but, Fascinating stuff. I think we were on our game. There were some things we just didn't make predictions about, but uh we made some other predictions that uh that weren't so hot. Alan, do you have do you have one that uh maybe you weren't fond of? Yeah, because there were a lot, so we're just gonna look at some uh where we're may, maybe our worst. We'll go with our worst and keep it real with everybody. Uh well well I'll I'll just touch on two. I was really high on the rookies of Ryan Priest and Daniel Hemrick. And while they, you know, had productive years and I'm sure improved throughout the year and did what they had to do as rookies, I just predicted them to do a lot better in terms of just raw finishes, you know, the top 15s and top 10s. I was way off on both of their predictions. They came in well under than what I was doing. So that's one. Uh, Priest and Hemrick just didn't fare as, as well as I thought they would. Uh, but I think my biggest miss, and I don't know if I, you know, I don't think a lot of people would have predicted this, but I just want to give credit where it's due. Uh, to Ryan Newman, because I predicted him to have five or fewer top 10 finishes, and he nearly tripled that. He had 14 of them. Uh, that was, I was way off. Again, I'm sure a lot of people, it, it was a surprise run for a lot of people, I'm sure, to see Ryan Newman do that well. But look, he had a dramatic jump in production after the age of 40, and that's not something we see, and that's something that needs to be uh, credited and uh, applauded, and uh, it made my prediction way off for Ryan Newman, so kudos to you, Ryan. Yeah, and, and I've got I've got two I'll, I'll talk about. Uh, the first one was my pick with Stuart Haas Racing. I said that Rodney Childers would improve his pit strategy numbers, but his car would regress in speed. Could not have been more wrong. His pit strategy, his pit strategy numbers worsened, like the bottom fell out and unbelievably speed stayed exactly the same. Still ranked first in central speed. So look, old Rodney still, still relying on fast race cars to get him out of jams. Uh, 
hey, okay. I mean, look, he got in the championship four. I, I was wrong about that one. But the one that I was way off on was, like you, Ralph Fenway Racing. Both teams missing the playoffs, I said. And uh, I was partially right. But, uh, boy, Ryan Newman, the sixth team, I, I tell you what, um, it speaks to the nature of how when everything breaks correctly and you're able to execute a plan that you had from the onset that it can work. And don't know about you, but for me, it's good to see a team that ranked 21st in central speed make the playoffs because it's good to know that things other than speed can affect mm-hmm. a race uh, or a playoff race. It's, I mean, it is frustrating for the amount of work I do. For a minute, I was truly worried that none of the other stuff mattered. Just have have the 16 fastest cars in the playoffs. Be one of those guys. You're golden. But the number six team, Ryan Newman, Scott Graves, they illuminated an alternative pathway. And I am curious to how the 2020 season will play out. I think there will be copycats. I look forward to seeing other teams try their hands at this, at what Newman accomplished, because that makes the middle of the pack every Sunday during a regular season race far more interesting. I was reticent about the advent of stages and points being doled out in the middle of races. I think they've made it something that I have to pay attention to now. Sure. Um, we, we, so I'm... I uh, weirdly I'm saying like I'm I missed but I'm happy about what it brought me because it created something interesting where otherwise it may not have been there. All right, yes, you know you win some you lose some you, you get some right you get I look forward to next year Dave when we make our 2020 predictions. I'll be much better at it than I was this year, I promise. That uh wraps up the cup side. Let's uh you know get some quick love to Xfinity and Trucks because David Tyler Reddick went out there and did it again. I'd argue it was one of the most entertaining races of the year. That Saturday Xfinity race uh between the big three of the Xfinity series. It it, it just had all the storylines that came together, right? I mean, these three, Christopher Bell, Tyler Reddick, Cole Custer had dominated throughout the year with 50 laps to go. They were all within a, you know, what, a tenth of each other, it seemed, you know, throw a blanket over them, that whole thing. It was just an awesome race. And, uh, Tyler Reddick brought it home once again. Six wins for him, 27 top tens this year, you know, unlike 2018, I mean, really throughout the year. I mean, he was one of the guy, you know, he was the top, he was one of the big three, a player throughout the entire season, kind of cemented his reputation as, uh, kind of balls to the wall, an entertaining driver to watch. Uh, was this year any more important in terms of, you know, winning that championship? Was this year any more important or different than 2018 for Tyler Reddick? Oh, I, I, I certainly think so. Because if you consider the championship in 2018, it was a championship and he went out and, and stomped everybody at Homestead and was deserving. But for the season, he ranked 20th in peer. He was a subpar passer. Uh, he had a 67% preferred groove restart retention rate. He was 55% from the non-preferred groove. And all of that improved. He topped series regulars in peer this year. He was a top three passer. Uh, His restart rates went to 80% and 60%. And uh, I think this answered all the questions that I know I ever had of Tyler Reddick, um, considering where, where I was last year. I ranked him fifth as a prospect in 2018, despite... Bad production numbers, bad passing numbers, pretty much everything because of gut feel. 
And after the 2018 season happened, I didn't give him any credit. I, it was more, it was like, it was a fool me once, um, shame on, uh, shame on me kind of thing. This year I ranked him 18th after guys like Justin Haley, Kaz Gralla and Tyler Ankrum. And I, I just didn't give him the benefit of the doubt. And this year was a win for the eye test. Uh, Tyler Reddick is visibly good. He has had disjointed advanced statistics in the past. And that's, that is a bet that Richard Childress is making. Look, he called Tyler Reddick the next Kale Yarborough or said, or said he reminded him of Kale Yarborough. That is, that is high praise, but that could also go very wrong if this does <laughs> not work. But look, Reddick, uh, he had a fantastic year. Um, Richard Childress racing caught them kind of in a lightning in the bottle situation. They're the fastest team in the first half of the season in the Xfinity series. Uh, he will move up with Randall Burnett into the eight car. So there's some continuity there. It could be an interesting team. He performed very well at Kansas in his first uh, real Cup Series start this year. And I don't know, op- optimistic, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it should be fun and entertaining to watch. So on one end of the spectrum, you have Tyler Reddick and his six wins in a championship. On the other end, you have truck champion, now three-time truck champion, Matt Crafton. Zero wins in the regular season. 44 laps led total in the 23 races. I've been saying it all year. I'm privileged to be down there on the pit road in trucks. I can tell you after seeing every lap this season. I mean, he was a player in some of these races. He had a ton of mechanical issues, a ton of engine issues. That whole Ilmorse thing, you know, it always seemed to get the 88 at, at the worst time. Or, um, But, you know, there there were some... There, there were some moments where the 88 was just lacking or they would blow it on a restart or they wouldn't score the stage points. There were issues. Like there were clear issues as to why they weren't getting the wins or leading the laps or looking like the championship contender. But they pointed their way in to Homestead and then they were the the highest finishing of the championship four. And that gets you the title now. And he earned it. He, he did what they had to do when they needed to do it at Homestead. Matt Crafton is your champion, David. He was never bad, right? That's an excellent way to put it. (laughs) He he had, he had a top 10 truck in terms of central speed in all but three races. And two of those were Daytona and the road course race, uh, Canadian Tire Park. He was an above par passer for the whole season, although he was the least efficient passer among, uh, the Thorsport racing driver sets. And, Look, I mean, I, I, I believe he was the one driver in the championship four who went out and ran his usual race. Brett Moffitt said in an interview with you after the race that we were bad tonight. Uh, Ross Chastain, Nice Motorsports never really had lights out speed. It just seemed that way. They only had the fastest truck in two races this year. And I think they made a big bet on how their truck would handle in clean air, but it was in dirty air towards the end of that race. And it took Ross Chastain a lot of time to get out of it. And then Stuart Friesen's team was good, but just not at the level of the other two. They ranked sixth in central speed for the season. Uh, I, I think to me, the only driver acting in the truck race as if it was the last race of the season was Austin Hill. And he went on to win the race and, I don't know. That's just what happens sometimes. I think you had three teams being overly cautious and Matt Crafton was just running the Matt Crafton race and it worked out. 
Um, I don't know that that is an indictment on the the playoff format that a, a driver with no wins wins the championship. I just happen to think it was a really weird truck series season because if you consider that the clear and obvious favorite every weekend was the 51 truck at KBM that was cycling through multiple drivers and they won the owner points. Um, even though some of their drivers can't buy their own beer. Like it, it's, <laughs> it was, it was an odd season. If it, if it wasn't odd, Ross Chastain wouldn't have decided in the middle of the season to switch to the truck series points eligibility. So I, I think it's fitting that we had a really weird finale, but the, in, in all of that weirdness, Matt Crafton was the one steady guy all year long. And in hindsight, it kind of makes sense that it would be him because this is, this is the guy who just didn't waver. He never was really bad. Yep. Uh, th- th- that's a great way to put it. And uh, a well-earned third title for Matt Crafton, especially in the race again, when it counted, that's what this comes down. A lot of this comes down to, uh, certainly your, your performance throughout a year says volumes about you and how you may be best equipped to perform in that final race, but it's ultimately what you do at Homestead and next year, what you do in Phoenix. But congratulations to Matt Crafton, Tyler Reddick, and Kyle Busch on a year well done. David, we have summed up the year, but this podcast is not over for the year. What is next for Positive Regression? So next week's episode of Positive Regression, uh, episode 45, It will be our last for 2019. Do not worry. We will return early next February. Uh, but, uh, but what we discuss in the final episode next week will be entirely up to our listeners. So, um, if you're listening, send us your biggest, weirdest, most forward thinking questions to us via our Twitter account at posregpod. And we will pick the best ones and give them the the deep dives they deserve. It will be a relaxed episode. Alan and I will probably be enjoying cocktails while we answer all these questions. It's going to be a lot of fun. No pressure, right? (laughs) Also, uh, that episode will come out Wednesday morning. We usually drop on Thursday morning. But uh, if you're traveling next Wednesday for Thanksgiving, make sure first thing in the morning that positive regression is uh, is on your iPod, downloaded, ready to stream, whatever you do. Make sure it's your travel companion because uh, we'll have some easy listening for you. I love it. I've loved doing it this year. Again, we still have another one, so I'm not going to get too sappy yet. But I can tell you, David, the more I've been going to races, you know, throughout the year, uh, the more you hear from people and listeners out there. I, I met a great Eric Jones fan at Homestead who made a, uh, a joke about the jerk store comment from Todd Gillen's episode way back when. So it's just fun to hear those references. And obviously people watch Race Hub and watch the truck races, but to to hear our work recognized and to talk with people about it at the racetrack, that, that's been the most fun part of the year. Uh, and I just thought that was really cool. So I hope uh, you're listening right now and, and made it to the end of this episode. So, uh, but yeah, so that we'll, we'll talk about that next week and stuff. But as always, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, we are available. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. That stuff is, it really is important to a podcast like ours and all podcasts, I guess, but it's really important to ours. So, uh, your help in spreading the word is much appreciated. Uh, you know, tell the rating, 
give us a review. <laughs> no, tell the review, give us a rating, and most importantly, tell your friends. If you do have any questions, like David just said, next week's episode is going to be all about your questions. So if you have them, you know we love to answer them. Hit us up on Twitter, POSREGPOD, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, the season might be over, but your work is not. What are you working on? Uh, yeah, how do I get one of those off seasons? Uh, it doesn't <laughs> matter. Um, my off season content is already underway on the athletic. A look into the 2020 season for the eight teams that made it into the final two rounds of the NASCAR playoffs, determining how they could realistically fare better or worse. Later in the week, I will post an evaluation of this year's rookie crop with quotes from Daniel Hemrick and Ryan Priest. I sat down with them and asked them about the rookie transition. What does it mean? How real is it? Uh, what their biggest struggles were this year? And they gave me some candid, eye-opening answers that I'm thrilled to share. Uh, they were great. Uh, that will be conveyed in this piece. And uh, keep your eyes peeled on motorsportsanalytics.com, where I'll be posting year-end stats over the next few weeks. This is the time of year. I take the time to populate the site with everything I've been hiding or haven't done at all. So <laughs> check uh, check all of that out. Uh, st still, there's just going to be good stuff uh, coming your way. So keep your eyes peeled. Good stuff. Uh, Race Hub has wrapped for the year, but there are still uh, plenty of special editions, the best ofs. We got a trivia show, the the best of Race Hub Awards. Uh, the, you know, we had a bunch of categories, best driver, best social moment, all that stuff. Uh, so there'll be a few episodes throughout uh, the end of November and into December, so make sure you check those out. Uh, as for me, I get to take a little break. Uh, I'll be tweeting. I don't know. Check out my Twitter account at, <laughs> at Alan Cavana. Uh, still a lot of, uh, you know, silly season and, and news that, that will be coming out in all three series. I mean, just this week, we've heard a lot more about the trucks and the loaded lineup GMS is going to have. Still wondering where Daniel Suarez is going to go. So there's still plenty of news to be had and we'll be covering it all just, uh, on the social spheres and on next week's episode of Positive Regression, of course. So, uh, still, still work to be done. Uh, David, I'm not working as hard as you. I apologize. I'm, I mean, I don't know. That sounded pretty bad. Yeah, right? yeah. That, I mean, that, that would be enough stuff to just give me a lot of stress. <laughs> so I think you're all fine. good. All good. Well, as always, thank you for listening to Positive Regression. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Have a great week, everybody. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.